this week on The Futurists. We're in a period right now of, it's not COVID as much as the realization that we're in a paradigm shifting period for humanity. You're not imagining it, it's all true. The internet, the, the virtualizing of the world is something that we as humans have never experienced. And every time we go through as a species, a major technological event that changes, not just, when we say changes society, it sounds very, you know, okay, changes society. No, I'm talking about it changes who we think we are, how we relate to one another in families, communities, and society, and how we relate to the cosmos. I mean, it is it is a huge ethical shift. Welcome to The Futurist, where we explore the thought leaders, the engineers, the thinkers, examining and building the future. This week on The Futurist, we're going to introduce you to not only someone who writes in the sci-fi world, but also someone who is involved in the forecasting space. And uh, I'll let you introduce her, Robert. Well, that's great, Brett. Thanks, uh, and, and welcome back to our listeners. Uh, you know, Brett, I was thinking, uh, since we just recently conducted an interview with a, a super forecaster, I've been thinking a lot about scenario planning. Um, and the people who do this professionally are typically hired by organizations that have a real long time horizon. You know, think about somebody in the energy industry, for instance, and they want to get a scenario that's, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years out in the future. Um, and what, what I've kind of concluded is that the people who do this for a living tend to present that scenario in the driest possible terms. Uh, you know, they don't yeah. present it in a sensational way because then they won't be taken seriously. So they kind of oversteer or overcorrect uh, for boringness uh, because boringness equals credibility in the business world. And I've often thought, well, wait a minute, though, what would happen if you went the other direction? What would happen if you embraced, I don't know, uh, possibilities and, and, and maybe some of the speculative possibilities might lead to a little more drama and excitement. In other words, what would happen if you tried to make the that storytelling aspect, right? That's exactly right. Like putting, course, putting yourself in those forecasted scenarios or worlds, that's, 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 I guess, the difference between sci-fi and, and just pure forecasting. That's exactly right. And, the, and that leads us to today's speaker, who is a, a forecaster par excellence, who also tells a darn good story. So this is an introduction to PJ Manny. She is a best-selling author, um, in particular, well-known for the, uh, the trilogy called Phoenix Horizon that was nominated for the uh, Philip K. Dick Award. Um, and she's a fabulous writer, but she's also really well grounded in these technologies because she's a practitioner herself and she's uh, involved in organizations like the Institute for um, Ethics and Emerging Technology. And she's been active in those fields for decades. Uh, so she's no newcomer to this stuff. And that's really well borne out by her books. Uh, so, so welcome to the show, PJ. It's a real pleasure to have you here with me and Brett. Thank you so much, Robert and Brett. Uh, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to so, the future. <laughs> That's exactly. <Yeehaw. laughs> you, you, you've been living in that future for many, many years, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, Brett, I had sent a note over to PJ talking about how uh, she creates future scenarios. And she pointed out to me that actually uh, they're pretty close to the present day. So I guess the first question I have for you, PJ, is, is do you consider yourself a science fiction writer or a writer of, of more speculative fiction that's grounded in the present time? Well, the funny thing about the Phoenix Horizon trilogy is that when I wrote Revolution, I started writing it in 2007. I finished it in 2009, and then I did rewrites, but they were mostly for literary merit. <laughs> um, and it didn't get sold until 2014, and it came out in 2015. So, you know, back in 2009, when I finished all the technological aspects of it, it was science fiction. I was talking about brain-computer interfaces and nanomedicine and a whole host of technologies, especially cognitive technologies, which were really just being theorized at the time. And there were research and development. Everything I write about was really in research and development, but I spun it out into these, you know, how would I build a brain-computer interface? And what became ironic <laughs> was that apparently 
some pretty famous brain-computer interface people read my books and decided to get into brain-computer interfaces in the first place. And, uh, well, you know, if you look at, at the first version of Neuralink, uh, that's actually been manifest, not what they originally formulated, the Neuralace, but the, the, uh, the present uh, construction of it is directly out of my book. And, um, and then later books I wrote, I discovered that the same founder was, was using more things out of the book and going into those areas. And the culmination was, I say something at the end of conscience, basically, please don't send humans into space. It's stupid. We really need robots embodied, you know, basically embodied intelligences, but that are robots because their space is really too dangerous for humans. And what does he literally months later bring out a dancer in a robot suit? Uh, to announce that, no, he's yeah. actually going to send robots to Mars. And I just sit there and go, okay, great. Uh, geez. Now, can you put the ethics that I put in the book in there too? <laughs> yeah, this is, we just had, uh, we, we were fortunate to have uh, Harry Clure on, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just on a previous episode talking about his robot avatar. And, it, you know, it does make a lot of sense to um, use a, avatar robot body of course the problem you've got with mars is that the you know the distance in terms of communication unless we can figure out superluminal communication you know you're always going to um have have a lag um you know between you know you're not going to have real-time teleoperation so i mean isn't the whole part of it like experiential like i want to go to mars i want to put boots on the ground you know i know it's dangerous the trip but um, I think it's I think it's going to depend on who you are and there will always be people who wish to go into space. I think that's fantastic, but you can't assume that you can actually have humanity move into certain not all space, certain space with gravitational and atmospheric problems for which we do not yet have solutions. Right, because the human body is is fairly fragile. In that it's environment. extremely flag- fragile and designed solely for this planetary experience. I do think that we will come up with, as time goes on, some interesting hacks around this. But I fundamentally don't think that the timelines that have been given uh, in the advertising, shall we say, are accurate. Um certainly for for humans in the scope in which that they've been discussed. Yeah, just the fact that people who spend a great deal of time in orbit, not even out in space, exactly, uh, they come back with uh, physical deformities, you know, sometimes blindness, um, bone loss that's never recovered. Uh, so I think I think we've greatly uh, kind of wallpapered over those issues. You think about the great duration of the of the trip to Mars, that might be a one-way ticket for a human being. And at any rate, there's a finite amount of distance we can go with this life support systems to keep those humans alive. And meanwhile, all the really serious science that's happening in space right now is being done by robotic systems that were launched sometimes decades and ago. And really, the, you have to remember that the the, ad, the the marketing for Mars is really about asteroids. What we're looking for is a low gravity takeoff, a low gravity right. well for takeoff so that we can go into the asteroids mine. It's all about mining rare earth minerals, all the things we need to continue the technologies that we are have created and will continue to create. They're made with materials that are becoming harder and harder on earth to find. It's not only that they're not everywhere, uh, but certain countries are now having a monopoly on those materials. Right. And certain uh, entrepreneurs don't want anyone else to have a monopoly on those materials. So really what they're looking for is mining operations. And that's what this is all about. If you actually look at everything that Musk has done in the technological space, every single thing he's done is actually a preparation to use it on Mars. That occurred to me the other day watching his TED talk, because he, when he's talking about abundance, um, you know, that, that that's the limitation to, to that premise is that, um, you know, you, you, you can't have abundance without asteroid mining effectively. At some point, you've got to throw that in the equation. But then again, you also have the issue of, you know, I say, I call it the expanse issue, which is fanboys of the expanse. And look, I'm a huge fan of the expanse, but I, as a work of fiction, <laughs> the problem is that people look at 
this becomes, this is actually the interesting issue of between science fiction and future scenario building is, you know, in science fiction, we go after the drama, we go after the dilemmas, the obstacles, the difficulties, because, you know, you want people invested and in, in a story. And that's a very Western form of storytelling, by the way, which I can talk yeah. about the other versions of that later. Um, but with what with that, you get this as inspiration for few, real futures as opposed to just science fiction futures. And there are a number of people who've read The Expanse who look at it as a how-to manual. So we'll create indentured servitude. We'll create. We'll, we'll basically take all of our problems on Earth and we'll just transfer them into space without really having any interest in solving those problems. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, in a way, that's the same thing that's happening with the metaverse, right? You've got all these very literal-minded folks in Silicon Valley who want to build the metaverse when uh, Neil Stevenson was very clear, you know, when we were at Snow Crash, that this was a warning, right? This is a dystopian yes. scenario. And they seem to have gotten, they, they seem to have missed the message there. Well, this um, is the problem with the cautionary tale. Even, you know, <laughs> we, we as science fiction writers enjoy writing the cautionary tale because honestly, it's easy. Like this is the dirty secret about science fiction is you want to write the cautionary tale because it's the easiest story to tell. But even Neil Stevenson, and one of the reasons why I, I have moved into certain areas, even Neil Stevenson said in around 2011, he started talking about this. Um, the problem with writing dystopias is that people think that that's okay. We're not going to work our way out of this. We're just going to head right, right down into the belly of the beast. And that's not the case. If we give our audiences a how-to manual for a better future, if we show them paths to possible futures that could be had, well, wouldn't that make a better future? Mm. We we had um, Kevin J. Anderson on talking about mm -hmm. this um, for, for, for our second episode, our inaugural guest episode, and he was saying that, um, you know, Part of this is because if you look historically at sci-fi production at a movie or TV level, it was a lot cheaper to do dystopian worlds than it was, you know, um, at worlds with abundance and where, where inequality had um, been resolved and things like that. So um, hopefully now with CGI and so forth, we, we'll have more representation of these optimistic views of the future. But you're right. You know, it's things like I, I, I can't understand it because for me, sci-fi is all, all about optimism, um, you know, and the possible futures. Um, but, but then you have people looking generation. at and, yeah, This is generational, thing. Brett. This is generational because what we have is an inverse relationship for positive stories and bad times. And then as times get better, we inversely flip to better times with bad stories because we have the, the safety and security to actually take in the bad story. You know, we were, we just came out of a period last several decades where we all felt we were on the upswing. Everything was great. And we could take the dystopias in, we could, we could wallow in them. But during the depression, during the war, we were doing scribble comedies and movie musicals. And there is this inverse relationship through the history of entertainment between how the time is perceived by the people who are living in it and the kind of entertainment that's being presented. And right now, we as a culture see that we're not in a good time, that things are getting nutty. And we want more positive futures because it's really, I mean, nobody wants to read dystopia. Trust me when I tell you the people being published right now are very upset if they've been writing dystopias. <laughs> So does this no mean that Matthew McConaughey them. is going to be doing more rom-coms again, though? Is that is that what you're predicting? Oh, I, actually, I, I know this for a fact because uh, Netflix all right, all right, all right. basically, uh, well, Netflix is going into the rom-com business. Hardcore, oh, okay. hardcore. Wow. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> I mean, I have really... I've, I've enjoyed the fact that we've had some stellar um, sci-fi, you know, like The Expanse, um, you know, altered carbon and, you know, stuff like that. We, we've had some amazing sci-fi to, to watch the last few years. As a, as a guy that grew up in the world of Star Trek and so forth, I, I love this. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, it's interesting to sort of observe that different style of storytelling. What will the current, you know, like the COVID situation, how will that change our narrative over the coming, you know, decade or two? I have a lot of ideas on that, actually. I can imagine so, you do. So I'm writing a book uh, called The New Mythos, and I've already taught a class on this um, for uh, the Rambo Academy uh, of Wayward Writers. Uh, so for science fiction and, and fantasy, speculative fiction right, authors, we're in a period right now of, it's not COVID as much as the realization that we're in a paradigm shifting period for humanity. You're not imagining it. It's all true. The internet, the vaporization, if I may use Robert's word. <laughs> nice. Thanks for the um, uh, the, the virtualizing of the world is something that we as humans have never experienced. And every time we go through as a species, a major technological event that changes not just when we say changes society, it sounds very, you know, okay, changes society. No, I'm talking about it changes who we think we are, how we relate to one another in families, communities, and society, and how we relate to the cosmos. I mean, it is, it is a huge ethical shift. And this happened in the first millennia BC, when all of the religions of the world were basically formulated. It happened, and, and when you look back, it was the, the rise of the city. It was the bringing together of large groups, bigger than Dunbar's number. So people had to create trust systems. So we, were, we created these laws and religions to help us deal with each other in close proximity. The next big one was the Enlightenment, which changed everything with the Industrial Revolution and the scientific method and scientific inquiry. And that completely changed how we told stories. I mean, Frankenstein, there's a reason Frankenstein happened. It, is, it wasn't a, oh my goodness, how did this, this work of art, the first great speculative work of art, happen? It happened because of this huge change. And now we're in the next change. And so every time we go through a change, we actually change our myths. And we actually lay them on top of each other. It's like, it's archeology, span right? You're, you don't eliminate the Bronze Age ideas. You build on top of them and you throw out what doesn't work for you right now, then you bring on new stories and new myths. So that's where we are right now. And I've been working with writers, creatives, academics, ethicists, and coming up with ways of framing these new stories that we're gonna be telling. And they all involve new ways of seeing ourselves, which are very, when you think about it, very sci-fi. That's a really good uh, starting point for our conversation then. You know, all this talk about spaceships and dystopias takes us pretty far apart, uh, pretty far away, I guess, from your subject matter, which doesn't involve any spaceships. In fact, I said to someone, when I told them that we were going to interview you, uh, I, they said, what kind, of, what kind of books did she write? And I said, well, she writes sci-fi for people who don't like spaceships and monsters or time travel, right? It, it's sort of, it's science fiction for people that want to relate to the world that we're in right now, because that's weird enough. Like the world that we're in right now is such, one of the factors you mentioned, you know, these technologies is uh, accelerating technologies, right? So things are moving so fast that the weird, the world today is weird enough. You don't really need to invoke some, you know, uh, some, some spaceship in order to explain it yeah. uh, or to make it seem strange to people, I should say. The context is right around us. So talk to us a little bit about, um, beyond the new mythos, tell us about the books that you've written. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so why don't you tell us a little bit about revolution, identity, conscience, the, the Phoenix horizon trilogy and, um, and, and what those represented. I did not realize that there, that there's, those books are actually in some cases more than 10 years old because they seem so fresh. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so I, I saw back in the early 2000s, the rise of authoritarian, one might even say fascist thought in the West, the, the reemergence. It always been there. You have to remember that 30% of any human population is authoritarian. It just, that's how humans work. But I was watching it starting to take center stage. And I also was watching this use of new 
technologies, the research into new technologies about nanomedicine, brain-computer interfaces, robotics, artificial intelligence, that I knew were, were going to change everything. And I wanted to take people, the, the books are very funny. They're a little deceptive because I designed them. The first book is a political techno thriller, right? You know, you can still pick it up now and go, ooh, airport novel, like, but with like, you know. Revolution and, is what we're talking right, about. Revolution. Um, so I wanted to take you by the hand and lead you into the future, book by book. So the first book, you get through to a pretty outrageous end with uploading and, you know, digital intelligences and all the rest. But you feel like it's a world you recognize. So mm -hmm. I'm not having to teach you about, I'm not having to do a world building where I have to teach you about everything all over again, which is where the alienation comes in for non-science fiction readers. It's true. I mean, down so to like a specific building on the Stanford campus, you know, like, like it's, it's very concrete and tangible and recognizable. Right. So, and then the second book ups the ante, ups the science fiction level, ups the political futurist level ups all of it. And then the final book is pretty hardcore science fiction. Um, it takes a lot of it takes place virtually, even though I ground those places again. And if you read Conscience, Robert, you might have recognized the Purple Valley um, where he goes to where they build build a, a place he's been before. And it actually is the Williams campus and, and, the, and the church and the church that he has the conversations with, in essence, himself, an, another version of himself, uh, is, in fact, the church right in the center of, of Williams. So <laughs> Thank, I spent a lot of time checking. there with my kids. <laughs> Thank you for name checking my college. That's really honorable. Thank you. <laughs> um, go Williams. <laughs> yeah, go Williams. Um, so I, I wanted to take people where they didn't think they could go. And I had this reaction from so many, what I would consider mainstream readers, which was, I didn't think I liked science fiction, but I love mm -hmm. these books. And and I, I'm totally along for the ride. It's like, you got me. And that, that for me was my job. So I have a mission statement and my mission statement in life is to help people understand where they're going. Mm. But I don't want to do it just among us, right? I, I, I don't want to do that, you know, like Brett and, and you. And I, I, I want to include everybody in that when we don't include people in where the future is going, we have future shock. And that's actually what we're in right now. We're in this process of shock and disgust and re revulsion of things that people don't understand. because And that makes them scared, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and fear is the most dangerous thing we can have. The only thing to fear is fear itself is actually true. <laughs> so I want people to have a familiarity so when this stuff happens, they just don't freak out. And it's a it's almost a philosophical question or debate, right? Is where humanity's going. And I think we've got to have those grown-up conversations, you know, and and um, you know, th these sort of dialogues are important in establishing, um, you know, this is why we have to talk about ethics in AI right now, or this is why we have to talk about this, because if we don't and we just go on this autopilot trajectory that we've been, we've been on as a species, then the outcome's not optimal. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, I was just on a panel for the United Nations Association and they were doing a women in, in AI technology. And I was really honored to be on it because it was like, you know, the head of AI for Walmart, the, the you know, the chief technology officer for IBM and all women. Really fascinating. Um, and I everybody was getting very into the nitty gritty, which is fantastic, of how do we make better AI better, more women in AI, et cetera. And I actually kept on pulling everybody out to the big picture, which is in every aspect of technology, it's not just artificial intelligence, but in every aspect of technology, if you're missing 51% of the population, you're missing more than half the population. And if you're not considering how over half the society needs to come to grips with this, also, we're talking about the elderly and children. And, you know, we're talking about entire groups that aren't being considered in the biases. So what do you do? You have to write yourself into the story. And again, it's kind of a, it, it can sound trite, but it actually isn't. Because if we don't tell those stories from the very beginning, 
if children don't know that they have a right to decide how AI is used, if women and minorities and every ethnicity and the elderly don't have a right to start making decisions about how, how AI is used, then we have failed as a society because that's when it runs us. Well, on that note, we probably need to head to a break right now, but in the second half, we'll certainly come back to this topic of ethics and technology. There's a gigantic ethical blind spot in the tech space right now. You're listening to The Futurists with Brett King and myself, Rob Tursick, and our guest today is PJ Manny. So stay tuned for this. We'll be back in just a second. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. Uh, before the break, we started our conversation with PJ Manny, a uh, author, super forecaster, future thinker in the space. And we just got finished talking a little bit about AI ethics. Uh, but PJ, um, you know, when we, we look at the, the world of, uh, you know, the future that you try and introduce people to, um, you know, maybe we can sort of start with a reference point going back to, you know, the work of Alvin Toffler and and so forth, the, the elements of how humanity adapts to these, um, you know, magnitudinous changes in terms of the way we live together, the, the way technology changes society and so forth. Um, you know, how do you think about that framing in terms of adaptation of humanity? Um, you know, what's needed to successfully transition these ages between these massive leaps in technology, for example? I'd like to just back up one second and and uh, ask that we call them the Tofflers because it was Alvin and Heidi, and Heidi was his full partner, and she I, gets yeah. forgotten, yeah, uh, especially I, considering I, the time they were writing. Um, you know, she she I I think the reason the Tofflers got so much right is because it was Alvin and Heidi. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know? that's that's the, you're absolutely right. Calling me out on that, and I, I do the same with Will and Ariel Durant when I talk about lessons from history. Right? You know, it's because right. uh, it, it's always Will Durant. The the but but yeah, it was was a team effort. I I think that um, the Tofflers were phenomenal, and they really saw what was coming, what we've already experienced, and and kind of where we are now. I think what's what we're going to be seeing in the biggest sense is we've seen the failure of, and I'm going to use the word globalism because everybody thinks it's a big bad now, um, but I'm going to recast it in another way in a moment. I think we're going to see more growth in coming together in community building. We're seeing it already, but we're going to see that accelerate because one of the things that the internet has done, unfortunately, has accelerated trends which were already happening. So we were have, coming into, I, I'm, a big, uh, I'm a big fan of Clear Dynamics and Peter Turchin. He became a friend. He actually proofread the Clear Dynamics section in Identity. Um, and um, I really agree with him in these 40 to 60 year cycles, certainly in the West, uh, and the reasons why we come together in social cohesion and the reasons why we dissolve that cohesion. And We've been in a period of dissolution for a while. And, you know, back in 2000, I want to say 2006, he, I think it was in Nature, he printed the famous political violence article where he's like, okay, 2021, we're going to be in, you know, it's all, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, <laughs> and 
that's because he was watching these trends, much like the Tofflers had, of conflict building, more growth of haves and have-nots, uh, what they call elite overproduction in cleodynamics, which is the idea that the elites, there's so many elites now, they're so successful, There's everybody wants to be an elite, that suddenly the road to being an elite, whether it's a certain kinds of college educations, whether it's certain kinds of jobs, are now harder and harder to get. It's only so many chairs on the musical chairs of being in the elite. There are only so many people in so many positions, and yet the greasy pole gets greasier and greasier to get there. That's that's not all. He says that um, as you overproduce elites, and you know, as you said, it's musical chairs, there's not enough seats for all the people that the universities are producing who have elite yeah. qualifications, then some of those disaffected people who can't find a role, a constructive role, they start to take on a destructive role. And I think we're seeing examples of that even here in the United States and our political leadership, where, you know, if, if I can't be constructive, then I'll be destructive, I'll bring it down. And, and we're systematically demolishing institutions. Again, it's not science fiction. This is the, this is the world that we're in right now in 2022. Exactly. And the thing you have to remember is it's a world we were in in the 60s. It was a world we were in in the 19-teens and 20s. It was a world we were in during the Civil War. I mean, you can just keep on going back every 40 to 60 years and you know, in, in American history. Um, and we're always in that kind of, of political and social turmoil. Um, the difference now is that we also had the 100-year cycle of pandemic at the same time. And we also had the 200-year cycle. It's called the secular cycle in cleodynamics, which has to be, which is about empire. And we are the empire. And so we're actually in, in a, a collision of three cycles, all hitting the bottom at the same time. Plus this, we, um, not, historically anomalous levels of inequality. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, which sort of takes us back to like the dark ages. You know, that's the last uh, reference point we have for this type of inequality. Exactly. So we have the most extreme version right now. That's not to say we can't have a positive future because we can. It's just we have to redefine what success looks like. What does success look like as an individual, as a, again, individual, family, community, nation, okay. world? And I like to look at success do you guys remember that the Powers of Ten movie that the, uh, Ray and Charles Eames made? Talk about again, again another great couple. Um, so the whole movie was about teaching exponential change you know, by by you know zooming in on the couple on the on the picnic blanket, zooming out to the edges of the universe, and back into a subatomic uh, particle in the skin of the woman on the blanket. And every time you came in or out by a factor of 10, it was a completely different view. And what I like to do is use that, like, like show that video and say to people, now look, there are solutions that work for the couple on the picnic blanket. There's a different solution that works for the west side of Chicago. There's a different solution that works for the United States. And there's a different solution that works for the planet. Now, let's try to come up with solutions that are actually win, 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 as opposed to, well, I just care about the individual solution because I'm a rugged individualist, or I just care about the social solution. If we can come up with solutions that address the issues, and I think we can, but you have to think that way first, we're going to go a long way in creating positive futures again. I do believe that that includes, and this goes back to ethics, having as many stakeholders as possible involved in decision-making. And to do that, you need an educated populace. So there are lots of moving parts in, in creating my little ideal future, but it's not even ideal. It's not utopia. That, that's that's a, a word I despise because it literally means no place. Like the joke about utopia is the word was created to say that it can never exist. What I believe in, and I'm writing about in the new mythos, is Michel Foucault, bring out the postmodernists, um, heterotopias, because heterotopias are, are places where we circumscribe the location and we decide to do something in there, and it's a place of change. All heterotopias are where things can change. 
And just by saying, hey, we want to make life better for ourselves in our community, you've created a heterotopia. To go towards utopia is itself a heterotopia. And change can only happen in these locations where we kind of set ourselves apart for a moment and go, okay, so how do we do this? But you do it together. Let me see if I can play this back in a way that frames the conversation uh, with the theme of our show, which is all about futures and methodologies for thinking about the future. And what I just heard, uh, you gave us you gave us quite a dissertation there because you went from this sort of macro view of these periodic cycles, the, the Peter Turchin concepts of uh, cleodynamics, and um, and you gave us a kind of a broad view of what's repeating and what's happening from the past and all these, the collision, I guess, of all these negative incidents. So, so you have that to work with, right? That, that informs it. And then you kind of talked about um, a political framework that could scale from the personal to the local, to the national, to the global and so forth. Uh, and I'm sure we can continue to talk about things like, you know, environmental effects and, 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 uh, and globalization policies and so forth. Okay. So given all that stuff that's rattling around in your brain, <laughs> Aren't you in a way when you write when very you sit down to write a question, book? Yeah, aren't you aren't you in a way when you sit down to write a book, aren't you creating your own heterotopia by saying, like, okay, I've got all this stuff. Now I need to process it and process it in a way where it's not a negative thing. It's not going to lead us to dystopia. We're not writing some doomsday novel or blade runner or something. Instead, I want to posit a world where change is possible. What would that look like? Is that really what you're doing? Because I'm trying to get to methodology here, because that's always this the question is exactly what I'm doing. You nailed it. Thank you. Right um, on. Huzzah. <laughs> um, that's exactly what Achievement I'm Achievement unlocked. <laughs> what I'm, what I'm trying, because here's the nature of storytelling is you have to leave stuff out. This is the thing that, you know, is the hardest thing to learn about storytelling, because especially when you live in a brain like mine, <laughs> you want to tell people everything, but you can't. So you have to choose very carefully, the things that mean the most to your audience. And don't forget, I come out of movies and television. Yeah. So I am really acutely aware and respect the audience. And everything I do, whether it's, you know, a white paper to a corporation or a TV script or whatever, I'm really considering who my audience is and what it is that they're looking for in the story I'm about to tell them. I'm not gonna tell them a lie. What I'm gonna tell them is in the way that I can make that boundary, that heterotopia around the concepts, I'm gonna leave a bunch of stuff out because they it will just confuse them. It's too much. So I'm gonna focus on the things that they can understand and appreciate and need to hear because the other job as a storyteller is you meet people where they live. And another thing I just, you know, yes, the inside of my head is bizarre, but I know how to communicate to anyone because I remember that they're not me and I want them to have the best story possible. So your experience in pop culture, particularly working at a movie studio, is uh, is kind of an exercise in radical simplification, right? Because um, screenwriting is all about what you remove, you know, and streamlining the story because the words can't get in the way, particularly for international films uh, where it's going to be dubbed or, you know, you have to deal with the revoicing it, um, translating it and so forth. So how does that economy fit into your methodology? Because I imagine then you take all the amazing number of ideas you've got in your head, and now you need to put it through some sort of filter or some lens uh, to clarify it and simplify it and streamline it. So there are two things, character and, well, yeah, character and, and plot. You know, one of the, it's funny, when I think about technology, revolution originally started as a TV pilot that didn't sell. We'd sold a whole bunch, but that one couldn't get any interest on it. And it was a different technology, but the concept was the same. Basically, this rise of authoritarianism and oligarchy and Peter Bernhardt at the center of it. And a friend turned to me when I said, you know, I'm just going to write the book because she was like, well, why aren't you writing about neuroscience? Because that's actually something you love and you're a geek about. I was like, well, yeah, duh. Why don't I do that? <laughs> you know, and and. 
I needed a technology that was a great demonstration of what happens when you're no longer in control of, of who you are. And a brain computer interface was actually perfect mm. in mm. to that. And it also fed all the, you know, uh, ever since I took Robert Sapolsky's human behavioral biology class, I have, you know, in summer school when he was illegally moonlighting at the new school uh, <laughs> for Rockefeller University, uh, I've been a brain geek. And it made a lot of sense to use that as the filter. But I also knew I wanted to tell the story of a man, Peter Bernhardt, who wanted the American dream because I, I had personally witnessed in my own family and in others the dangers of pursuing the American dream and not understanding what the price is. And there's always a price. And I wanted to pull these ideas together of that kind of a character with that kind of level of technology, next stage, uh, human enhancement and beyond. And what could I tell about that story? And then, to be really frank, I went to Alexandre Dumas because he's the man. And I thought, revolution is the Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. I wanted to tell a Count of Monte Cristo mm. story. And to be really spreading the secrets, identity is the three musketeers, but in this case, the lead is Athos, not D'Artagnan. Huh. Uh, you know, Ver Veronica is D'Artagnan. And in... The last book, it's The Man in the Iron Mask. Oh, man. Oh, that's interesting. And they get less and less like the books I'm 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 funneling because the story the story tells you what it's going to be. Like, that's another thing. You know, you get you get so deep in story. The story is the characters tell you who they are. The story tells you who it is. And you're just like along for the ride. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, wherever your subconscious is going, it's going. Um, uh, now I understand why you're doing the Mythos Project. So you're you're very much on this tip of recycling and reinterpreting these age-old narratives. You know, in a way, you mentioned Frankenstein before, right? Frankenstein's a replay of the Prometheus myth. myth. Absolutely. People, That's exactly people think right. Frankenstein's a monster, but it's actually Dr. Frankenstein, right, that we're writing about. And he uh, he's the guy who played, messed around with nature, you know, brought back fire. Okay, so so this is about revitalizing mythology. Um, that's an interesting notion. And yet you do it in a way where the characters aren't archetypes. They're not generic. And that happens a lot in science fiction where you have characters who represent something and they're not very good characters as a result. Yeah. They're kind of one-dimensional. Yeah. Your characters are very relatable. They're like people. And there's an element of humanity there. And I have to believe that that's informed by your deep commitment and interest in ethics. That's, that's what I had to conclude in, in preparing for this today. I know that that's a passion for you. And I know that it's a gaping uh, hole. It's a, it's a lacuna, if you will, in the technology industry because we have people who are running these companies who are borderline sociopaths with no grounding in ethics, in ethics or any kind of philosophy. Talk a little bit about ethics in technology. It started with my interest in empathy. Uh, I had made a connection back in 2006 between the discovery and naming of mirror neurons as a place where empathy is created in the brain. We still don't know actually now what they are, um, but their relation to storytelling. So I ended up writing a paper that became this weirdly foundational paper in like neuropsychology. <laughs> it's still cited. It's crazy. Um, but it's about how we as humans need stories to basically create empathy for the other. And then I wrote a, a follow-up paper called Yucky Gets Yummy, How Speculative Fiction Creates Society, where I map the uh, development of the other in speculative fiction to our feelings about the other, how he goes from villain to hero, from non-empathetic to deeply empathetic. And that's actually where the, the, the ethics came in. So for me, I look at, as you just said, I look at Silicon Valley, I see a lot of young people, mostly young men, who haven't, they've learned their coding, they've learned their technology, but they haven't learned why. Why are they doing what they're doing? 
what they know what makes people tick because they hire psychologists to tell them how to make things addictive, how to make things sticky. But they don't actually understand why we want to be in community or communication with each other. And it's like they're missing these enormous holes, uh, as you said, of ethics, but also of humanity. Like, we only exist as a species because we learned to live with each other. And we'll only continue to exist as a species if we create ethics and rules that allow us to coexist. I talk a lot about the noosphere. I'm actually working with a, a group, another ethics group, um, taking the ideas of Tehar de Chardin, Vernansky, and Leroy, and this concept of the noosphere as another layer around the planet. You the geosphere is the rock, the biosphere is the layer of life around it, and now literally around us is a global brain that we've created, and we're all nodes in that brain, whether we like it or not. And we're so connected that if we don't learn a new set of rules yeah. to live with this noosphere that we have built, and which, by the way, Tehard totally described, you know, in the early and mid 20th century, he's like, and then we're going to build this thing. He just didn't call it an internet. It was crazy. I mean, it, it, the amount of detail he has. But the fact that he, he a great futurist and a total uh, idol in Silicon Valley, by the way, which I find ironic because he was the most ethical man <laughs> I think I've ever read, uh, being a Jesuit priest as well. Um, there's a lack of consequences. I think the irony is we're all about, as Silicon Valley futurists are often about what's the technological trend, but not what's the social ethical trend. What's the consequence to this? I saw this in scientific research, doing my like books. Move fast and break stuff, right? Yeah, well, move fast and break stuff. But I also saw the scientists doing brain-computer interfaces, and I would say, you know, hey, what about stuff I'm writing about? And they go, I don't want to talk about that. No, nope. la, 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 la. Because they have to say it's for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's or they don't get funding. It takes a lot for somebody to say, well, what I really see is global telepathy with my brain-computer interface. <laughs> um, so if we don't start considering everyone that we meet as part of a greater whole of us in an ethical sense, well, you we're know, going to have a very uh, difficult noosphere, and we're seeing it right now. But it's even even in practical terms, if you look at where COVID broke down, a lot of that was where we didn't have a collective approach. And if you take climate, um, you know, food scarcity from, you know, climate change and things like that, unless we take a collective hum human view to this, then you're just going to, um, you know, uh, the problems of tribalism and all those things that we, we talk about historically, they're just going to be amplified by those, those world pressures. So the only way to get to an optimal state for humanity is collectively. But, you know, I, how do we break down those, those economic barriers to that and those, um, those you know, uh, cultural or, or national boundaries to that? So in it, so this group I'm working with, uh, Human Energy, which is working with the idea of the noosphere, um, one of the things I've been brought on to do is create a series of videos about the future of the noosphere. But what I want to focus on is exactly what you're talking about. And it's the, you know, how are we already seeing positive futures being made in with collective groups in smaller scales, but that can be scaled whether it's regenerative agriculture or working on climate change. I mean, some of the regenerative agriculture work I'm seeing around the world, I've been hooked up in some of these global networks, mind boggling. I, if everybody did this, we'd be, we'd be fine. <laughs> um, there, there are so many people doing positive things, but we're not hearing about it. And I want people to hear about it because the more people who do, the more young people look at that and go, you know what? I want to do that. I want to be a part of something like that because that's constructive. I want to learn how to do that. I want to bring it mm. back to wherever I live and see how I can adapt it to where I live. I, I think we're seeing some signs of that now uh, emerging, right? So certainly in the Web3 space, there's a generational shift where everybody who's crusty and 
kind of our generation is looking at it skeptically because there's a lot of techno babble and word salad and, you know, terminology thrown around and a lot of deceit and fraud, uh, particularly in the crypto space right now. But among the younger generation, they see it as uh, room for possibility. And they see it that uh, our generation has left behind a broken world and an economic system that is uh, that doesn't favor equality, that favors unequal distribution of wealth. Uh, they see accumulating problems coming from globalization, uh, you know, the degradation of environments and so forth. So that generation looks critically at the work of the of the baby boom generation, uh, and they're trying to posit an alternative scenario. Um, whether or not it's aptly expressed, you know, maybe at this stage it's a little ungainly. You know, as we get to close this session out, I think what we ought to do is uh, is think a little bit about the biggest implications here, because we have been living in hyperconnectivity, right? So for the last 30 years, we've all experienced this process where, you know, first it was millions and hundreds of millions, and now billions of people are connected. And at any given moment, you can understand what just about everybody is thinking about just about every topic. That hasn't worked out so well. It hasn't led to like, you know, global dawning awareness or a greater consensus. It's led to tribalization. It's led to hate. It's led to, you know, the um, in a weird way, the, the kind of weaponization of free speech uh, and the demonization of people who who dare to think about unconventional ideas. So, so give us something positive to go out with here tonight as you think about the noosphere uh, and as you think about your future work by building a new mythos uh, and, as, and as you help us construct new scenarios for the future. PJ, give us some hope. Give us a reason to be optimistic. I think the reason to be optimistic is we've been through this before. We go through these huge paradigm shifts and in every one of these times, we create new stories that help us adapt to a new future. We're gonna do that. The new mythos, I, I'm just showing people all the different branches of how we're gonna create new stories, which ultimately create new ethics. Stories are how we teach ourselves what to do and how to be. So if we can tell these stories, create these new myths, build new ethics, that help guide us. I think we have the capabilities. We're just going to go through a bit of a rough patch to get there. All right. Well, that is, uh, that's all we've got for tonight. PJ Manny, the author of Revolution, Identity, yeah. and Conscience. Uh, those are the, uh, those are the Phoenix Horizon trilogy uh, has been our guest this evening. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, not just about the great mess that humanity finds itself in and maybe our way out, but also sharing us a, a really intimate glimpse at how you work and how you grapple with these topics and how you process this information yourself. That kind of methodology is always what we're curious about here at The Futurists. Thanks a lot for having us. Thank you, PJ. We really appreciate it. And for those of you listening out there, you know, we're a new podcast. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback on who you'd like to have us interview on on The Futurists. Um, but by all means, tweet us out, get the news out there, and please go to iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is that you, you know, Podcaster or, or Stitcher, wherever it is that you download your, uh, your version of The Futurist and leave us a review. That really helps other people find... Uh, the podcast as well. You've been listening to The Futurist. We'll see you again next week. In fact, we'll see you in the, in the future. future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futuristpodcast.com for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.